0: Promises, promises, promises. Promises, promises, promises. We are in the season of promises. We've just concluded a season of promises known as the election. (laughs) Everybody making promises. Vote for me, and I'll do this, that, and the other. But you know how that plays out. People are put in office, promises are broken. People are disappointed. People are frustrated. We are very familiar in our lives with promises and the breaking of them, the disappointment of promises. Uh, Statistically, even in our American culture, even in our church culture, very familiar with broken promises. There is no greater promise made in this life than that made between a man and his wife. And yet we are very familiar with promises made, promises broken. So we know the weight of that. Even small promises. How many times has a child said to a parent, but you promised... And parents oftentimes don't even remember what the promise was. Or it was a partially offered word of assurance. So whether young or well-seasoned in this life, we are very familiar with promises. And we're very, very hurt and familiar with broken promises. Right. So this morning as we come to this text and to what the author of Hebrews is offering us, It'd probably be pretty easy to be jaded and a little dismissive of these promises and these offerings that God is making. Because we're so so familiar with broken promises. But this morning, if God would give us the ears to hear what He is saying about Himself, that He is the one true promise maker and the one true promise keeper, and you can bank on it by faith... It is an anchor for your soul that you would not drift away. That's the big idea of of what he's offering. We understand in our faith that the Bible itself is a book of promises. It's a theme throughout the scriptures of promises made by God to his people. Covenant promises. Promises that he never breaks and that he always fulfills. So if you're jaded this morning by hurt promises, by broken promises that have hurt you, my prayer is that God would help us to see the beauty and the wonder of His unique promises. Three simple points this morning, and the first is this, God's promise. So the author of Hebrews gets historical once again. He continues to go back in time to Old Testament figures, Old Testament events, And he's drawing these Hebrew Christians who were familiar with all of this. He's drawing them to think backwards in time to how this whole story of the church ever began. And you know it began with promises. With God making promises that he was up to something in this world calling a people to himself, increasing that people, and having them become a blessing to the whole world. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. These are some of those seed promises that he made to Abraham where he would provide what has become for us our understanding of what in the world he is up to. Genesis 12, he calls Abraham to himself. And in 15 and 17, those promises become more and more clear. And they're God's covenant promises made to Abraham. And what's unique about God's promises, particularly in Genesis chapter 22, is that he uses his own personal name to bind himself to his promise. Now, we do understand this in our culture. You know, anything legal and formal requires more than you initialing it. You put your full name down. If you filled out student loans, if you've bought a home or a car, you understand that when you put your full name down, you are now bound to see this through. And that same concept applies when in Genesis chapter 2, it says the Lord, in order to show how serious he is about his promise, he made an oath by himself according to his own name. He gave Abraham his name to say, this is how serious I am about these promises coming true. Genesis chapter 22 verse 16 says, if I wrote it down, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed." because you have obeyed me. Now those first words of that were, I swear by myself. You should feel the weight and the gravity of this. This is Yahweh, the God of the covenant, giving his personal name, saying you can bank on this, we would say. Gonna happen in God's own timetable, in his own way. Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, is the one true promise maker He is the promise keeper. And this is where our jaded hearts, our jaded experiences, will they soften to the beauty of God's proven faithfulness. Can your hard heart and mine believe that God is not going to disappoint like everything else we know in this life? That's what it is to have faith in Him, to take Him at His word and to believe Him. James chapter 1, verse 17, which was our reflection, the, the passage to kind of prepare us to worship. James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Which is a very poetic, poetic way of saying, God does things differently. He doesn't change. Everything else we know in this life is like shifting shadows, changes constantly. People will give you their word, then they'll break it, but it's not that way with the Lord. He has a character and a nature that is faithful and true. That's the nature of God's promise. That's how He offers Himself to us. And He puts His name to it, and He makes it serious for the the benefit of us who wouldn't believe that we would see that He is faithful to this. He is true. The hymn that we sing frequently, and we're going to sing it this morning, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, His covenant, His blood supports me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way... He then is all my hope and stay. It's the language of an anchor. It's the language of faithfulness in the midst of craziness. And that's God's promise. It's his perfect promise-making, perfect promise-keeping nature. And we're called by faith to believe in it. God's promises are real. They are true. You can hope. In him being faithful to them. You can put true hope in him being faithful to his promises. Now the second thing that the author of Hebrews gives us this morning is Abraham's patience. God's promises are perfect, but Abraham's patience is not perfect. And neither is mine and neither is yours. Yet strangely, it's credited to him as righteousness. Imperfect patience in God's sweet economy of grace is credited as gracious righteousness, as the Lord says in His Word. Remember that Abraham is this undeserving recipient of God's promise. Abraham didn't do anything to earn this covenant promise. Abraham didn't do anything to rise to the surface Uh, to set him apart from anyone else. It really was God's purpose and God's grace that he said, I'll take that man and through his family, through his seed, through his offspring, I'm going to change the world. It was God's idea. It was his promise and he would fulfill it. And just to remind you of a few of the details in the background here is that Abraham is about 70 years old when the Lord calls him. He's about 75 years old when the promise of a specific son is made. And Sarah, his wife, 90 years old. In this course of the beginning call of Abraham to the fulfillment of a son, about 30 years. And that's why it said that Abraham waited patiently. But those of you who know your Bible know that, well, wait a minute. Did he wait patiently? Remember, there's Sarah and her good idea about, I'm I'm old. I'm not producing children anymore. Abraham, why don't you take matters into your own hands and help God fulfill his promise? And you and I are very good at this, aren't we? We'll rise to the occasion and help God fulfill his promises according to our plan. And so Abraham waited patiently-ish, kind of. But it was credited to him as righteousness in the end. Because he did look to the Lord to be faithful to his promises. Uh, Genesis, where is it? Genesis 16, verses 1 through 4. If you want to look at this more on your own. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave, and perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. You know, this is really just taking matters into our own hands. Uh, We all do this. We we hope that things are going to go the way that they're said. But we're not very patient. And 30 years is a long time to wait. Humanly speaking. And yet, it's credited to him as righteousness. It says, Abraham was patient. And... Let this encourage you this morning, as it has me this week. Abraham had ups and downs. He had moments of robust faith. He had moments of failed faith. But the Lord proved faithful to his promises, regardless of Abraham and his taking matters into his own hands. Because the Lord had made a promise, he would bind himself to it, and he would see it through to the end. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. Listen to this. This is coming up in future sermons in Hebrews, but here's the little teaser. It says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he who was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Which is to say, those covenant promises God had made in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, it all came true. This is beautiful that God in His grace, when when we mess things up, when we try to force the issues, God still shows grace and mercy and answers His promises according to His will. God had made a perfect promise. Abraham had had imperfect patience, but even his imperfect patience couldn't thwart The promises of God. Amen? That's true for you and that's true for me. And that's what the author of Hebrews now tries to communicate in these last verses for the fact that Jesus is the anchor of hope for his people. Jesus is the anchor of hope for his people. He's not an anchor. He's not one of many anchors that you can choose from. He's the anchor. He's the anchor of hope for his people. Verse 19 says that he is firm and secure. And this is the imagery of an anchor. Now, some of you have boats. You spend a lot of time on boats. I don't own a boat. I've been on a few boats, but I understand an anchor. And I've been on a boat that needed an anchor and that used an anchor. And so kids, if if you don't have a concept for an anchor, quite simply it's this. It's that a ship of any size can find itself on the water in need of being still. And not drifting. Not being pulled here or there or tossed about out of control. And so anchors back in this era... Sometimes we're just baskets filled with rocks. Anything heavy enough and secure enough that could go down to the bottom and be firm and secure. That's what verse 19 says. And so the author of Hebrews uses this this sermon illustration. It's literally what it is. He says Jesus is an anchor. He is firm and he is secure. And we understand this. We understand that Jesus is unchangeable. God's nature is unchangeable. He will be true to His promises. He alone sees those through. And in that way, He is like an anchor. Now, He changes His illustration. He goes in another direction, but He parallels them and brings them together. He says that Jesus is a forerunner to the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain. And now once again, he's getting historical for these Hebrew Christians with a Jewish background in a way that they would understand. It's probably harder for us to understand this given our distance from these events. But the Hebrew, the Jewish worshiper understood that God had revealed His personal presence in what was known as the, the Holy of Holies. And you didn't just waltz into the presence of the Holy of Holies. There was a curtain there, and there was limited access, and there was always bloodshed required, right? But he says that Jesus is the forerunner that has made his way into the Holy of Holies. That the curtain has been torn. That which separated sinful humanity from the holy presence of God Jesus, as a true high priest, he has torn the curtain. And that language literally brings to mind Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, which says that after the resurrection, excuse me, after the crucifixion of Jesus, it says, at that moment, at, the, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, mysteriously and spiritually, but truly happening. That Jesus has has torn the, the curtain of separation. He has made access. He did it by his own death as a sacrifice. He did it through the shedding of his blood. He did it in a high priestly fashion. And now what the author is saying here, is that he's your anchor. But here's the memorable moment I want you to take home and talk about over lunch today. So we have this saying in our culture about anchoring down, right? Some of you maybe are Vanderbilt Commodore fans, and you know that's one of their slogans or or mottos uh, as the Commodores. They say to anchor down. Anchor down. And we get that imagery because when we throw an anchor out of a boat, where does it go? It goes down. And it's firm and secure because it goes down. But that's the opposite of what he's saying here. So here's your phrase for the day. Anchor up. Anchor up. And this is what he means. Jesus has become an anchor in heaven... In the presence of God, the holy of holies, he has anchored a sure promise into the presence of God. And so in that way, we are anchored up to a heavenly promise. We're not anchored to this earth. We're anchored to the heavens, to the next earth, what God will redeem. And so we anchor up. We're the only people who anchor up. It's because of Jesus, who is our anchor, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So, anchor up, Christians. Quit thinking downward. Quit thinking earthly about securities and hopes. Our hopes are in heaven. He has anchored them for us in heaven. Do you see the difference? He turns it upside down. We are anchored up into heaven. There are a lot of anchors that we can toss out of our boats hoping to secure us. Some of us need a bigger anchor. Some of us have small anchors that can't do anything for us. You know, the anchor of hope, ooh, it's sad and depressing when it's anchored in the wrong kinds of things. Uh, When it's anchored in your sports team finally having that banner year you know what it is when they suddenly lose and all hopes are dashed, right? If you're a sports fan of any kind, of any stripe, any color, you know what it is when you think this is going to be a great year and now they lose. That's a, that's a dashed hope. That's a small anchor. Some of you, i um, making fun of the Patricks right now. Some of you know through the years of looking forward to a vacation and it rains the whole week. A rainy week at the beach, that's a small anchor of hope. Or you go on that cruise and everybody gets the bug and is throwing up all week. Where's your anchor? It's a small anchor. We're called to anchor up into a true hope, the hope of Jesus, the hope that is in heaven. A few of you maybe have watched things that I've seen in the past few years. If you've not, Perhaps this won't work at all, but if you're at all familiar with that fictional football club known as AFC Richmond and the fictional coach known as Ted Lasso who coaches the Greyhounds, oh, there's so many good sermon moments throughout um, season one, but one of them, one of them is this. This American football coach who, because of strange circumstances, has been hired to coach English soccer. It makes no sense. It's not supposed to. But he finds himself coaching the worst team in the league that's going to be relegated. I learned what that meant by watching the series because I'm not a soccer person. But he's meeting with his coaches prior to an important game. And he's seeing that his coaches nor his players believe anything that he's saying. And he says, what's wrong with you? Don't you have any hope that we can win, that we can turn this thing around? And some of you know what he says or what they say. They say, it's the hope that kills us. Which is a way of saying for all sports fans, now we're tired of having hope. Our hopes always get dashed. It's the hope that kills us. Every year we have hope that this will be the year and then the same thing happens over again. We're tired of hope. It's the hope that kills us every year. And then Ted Lasso says, as only Ted Lasso can say, he disagrees. He says, no, it's the lack of hope that kills you. It's the lack of hope that kills you. And can I say to you that at least that phrase is a nice little summary of what the author of Hebrews is saying to a people who in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you need to pay more careful attention lest you drift away. You remember that nautical term? He's saying you are drifting from the one true hope that you have of Jesus being your high priest. And they're saying it's the hope that kills us. We're tired. You know, people are persecuting us for this new Christian faith. We've lost our lives and our livelihood. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, no, it's the lack of hope that would make you think you could go back to the previous priesthood of endless bloody sacrifices that mean nothing, which is what he's going to say in future chapters. It's not the the hope that kills us. It's the lack of true hope. It's the lack of anchoring up. It's anchoring down that kills us. So Christian, no more anchoring down. Anchor up to the promises that God has made for us in Christ Jesus. That he promises are true and that will not fail us. That is, if you believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to close with this. Two quick passages I'm not going to close with this. I have three more things. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. You've got to hear this. This is where these words spoken long ago take root right here in our sanctuary. He says this. This is the Apostle Paul. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's Paul saying all of those promises made to Abraham, they're not just historic old promises. They are alive and they are your promises under the condition of what? If you belong to Christ. And then in Romans chapter 4 verse 11 and verse 16, he says, same thing. Abraham received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised... So then he, Abraham, is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham's our father. Abraham's our father. And now in verse 16, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. The beauty of that is all those promises. And God, using his personal name to say these promises are coming true, they're applied to us, to every one of us. It's not the hope that kills us. It's the lack of hope that kills us. Do you have this kind of hope? Can you anchor up? Can you anchor up into that kind of hope? Now, I'll close with this. I was reminded this week it is the anniversary And some of you will remember this event. Of course, I do not. But it is the anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Forty-six years ago this past week on November the 10th, the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald on Lake Superior, 26,000 tons of iron ore aboard this massive ship. And you know of it if you're my age or so. From Gordon Lightfoot's song about it. And I heard that song this week as I was reminded, and I listened to it over and over again. What a powerful song, what a beautiful song. Share it with your children after lunch today. But there's a moving, powerful, disturbing stanza to that song by Gordon Lightfoot that says this. Now listen, we're hearing this through the ears of Hebrews, right? He says this Does anyone know? where the love of god goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours the searchers all say they'd had they would have made it to whitefish bay if they'd put just 15 more miles behind her they might have split up or they might have capsized they may have broke deep and took water and all that remains is the faces and the names of the wives And the sons and the daughters. So twenty-nine seamen, the entire crew perished on that November 10 storm that hit Lake Superior. And this song just it has this haunting stanza and, and haunting tune that brings to life some real doubts and some real fears that we have in this life. And he asks that question that I hope you could answer this morning. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? He's suggesting that we feel the absence of God in the midst of the storm, that we panic and we're fearful. But the author of Hebrews has answered that question for us. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the storm comes? His oath, His blood... His covenant surrounds me in the whelming flood. When it doesn't feel like it, God's promises are still true. They are still true. And then he says, if they had just gotten 15 more miles behind them, they could have made Whitefish Bay. Which is to say, if they could have just persevered a little bit longer. They were so close. They were so close to making it. But they didn't. And you know, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Persevere. Don't give up. Don't let the faith of Jesus slip you by. You need it. It is your only hope. So have your ears to hear. Listen to how these truths, these gospel truths, they're even in songs from the 70s that pop up with anniversaries during the week. But the ultimate call is perseverance. It's to anchor up, to not anchor down anymore, but to put our hope and our faith in Jesus. Let's pray that we would do that very thing. Lord, would you work in our hearts in such a way that not just at this moment, but throughout the week, we would remember the truth of your promises. That our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness, which you have promised to your church. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.